I want to welcome Dr. Douglas Mungin to the um, In My Fields podcast. Uh, he's a communica- uh, communication studies professor at Solano College. Um, tons of research, issues on the homeless, um, especially areas downtown Skid Row. Uh, his work covers social policies, everyday lives of, of, un- of the unhoused communities, uh, policing, and issues uh, of gentrification. Um, how I saw you was on the, um, the documentary of the, um, the vanishing at the Cecile hotel. Um, and usually how we start the podcast is, you know, thoughts, feelings, emotions, uh, positivity, negativity, um, on the inside creates your outside exterior. So my question to you, doctor is, um, how are you feeling right now in this moment? Uh, I feel great. Uh, I have a three week old newborn, so I am, uh, I'm battling extreme exhaustion, uh, but also dealing with the uh, the renewed kind of interest in Skid Row. Uh, this is kind of uh, unique for me because I've been doing this research now for the last 10 years. And so um, having a lot of people really interested about Skid Row um, is something that's pretty brand new for me. Um, it's been a, a lifelong subject of mine. It's been an area that's impacted my life. So I'm just really excited that people are really ready to discuss issues of the unhoused population and while also being a brand new dad for the second time so uh I, i'm feeling it i'm feeling the my age at this at there this point go. congratulations i have a, thank you a 16 month old daughter so oh I, congratulations thank you so i completely know about the exhaustion and i think that's that's the reason why we're, we're one and done because you know <laughs> a lot of parents forget the first one and and the t- and everything that comes with it. And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know if I can take that step again. We waited 11 years. So oh, we have an 11 year old, like <laughs> a three week old. And we're just like, I don't remember this part. I don't remember not sleeping this much. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's just one of those things that our bodies do to kind of uh, makes us forget so that we do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Cause it, it, to be honest with you, my, my, those days were a blur to me. And don't get me wrong, amazing, incredible experience. But seeing her now communicate and the way she's doing things, I'm like, okay, this is this is this is becoming fun. I mean, not that it wasn't fun before because it, it was a beautiful thing. But yeah, you forget all those, you know, the lack of sleep, the you having to f- actually do things during the day, and then when you have downtime, you actually have to do things. There is no downtime. Exactly, exactly. So uh, you might be hearing a screaming baby in the background, oh, and I apologize for, for that. Same for me. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so basically, uh, I mean, when I watched the documentary, I mean, it was super fascinating to me, um, you know, the, the Skid Row and I've lived in LA for seven years now, but I've never really, you know, of Skid Row, but you don't really know. And I think what that documentary touched up on, uh, apart from, you know, what happened there is the actual area of Skid Row itself. I mean, it's a huge area. I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah, it's um, one of the largest communities in the downtown area. I think that when people think of downtown, they think of like the large buildings, et cetera. But right next to it um, is Skid Row. And right across the river is East L.A. And so Skid Row um, occupies this really important space of L.A. history. Um, So in the earlier ages of the 1920s, 1910s, it was primarily industrial and agricultural. And then with the advent of um, transportation and also with um, big businesses moving into the area, what we saw was this um, need for unskilled labor. And so it started off as this community of young 
uh, single men um, who were in their 30s or 90s or 40s who would come in looking for work. And eventually it became the space to find work, but also um, for resources. Uh, so, you know, uh, the Catholic Church started to um, develop different uh, classes in that region. We start to see more work programs. And eventually it became the area that we see now that it's become this, ho this hub of homelessness, uh, this hub of uh, single room occupancy hotels. And I think that's what the documentary was trying to get that this um, Cecil Hotel was located in this really rich area that has been kind of undocumented for a long time that uh, a lot of the issues that we think about in terms of homelessness that we think in terms of violence um, have been around for over 70 years in this area. And I think that um, for most people from LA, we hear about Skid Row, we know not to go there. And when you're finally face to face with it, you realize exactly how extreme it is, but also you feel overwhelmed because there's just so much of it. And there's so much abject poverty that you become not desensitized, but you become overwhelmed and you just want to get out or you don't know what to do to help. Yep. And so, yeah, it's just one of those really interesting places in America. And unfortunately, there are skid rows like that um, in different cities and different states across the nation. So it, uh, skid row is, is technically the largest population of homeless people in the in the whole of the USA, right? Yes, yes. Uh, it also uh, houses the most uh, resources for the homeless population in the entire U.S. Uh, we call it the, a service center ghetto. Uh, so in like the 1970s, they brought all of these homeless services to this one spot in downtown L.A. And so we kind of created Skid Row. So it was already there organically. Um, but I think that in the 1970s, there was this intended effort to make this place Skid Row. Uh, and to And so it was also not in my backyard politics. So no one else wanted to have these shelters. No one else wanted to have these drug rehabilitation programs. And so we just put it all into this one space. And so um, if you are down and out, there's really only one place to go. And that's Skid Row. Wow. That's insane. I mean, I read somewhere it's like eight to 10,000 people. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it's off and on. And so what's interesting about Skid Row is like you have the unhoused population, the people that you see on the streets with the um, tents. But you also have this other population that lives in the SROs or the single room occupancies. And so um, there's a lot of people who are in drug rehab programs, who are in housing programs, who also live in Skid Row. So you have this weird mixture of transient individuals or unhoused population, but also you have this static population of people who have lived there for over 20 to 30 years in some cases. Do you, do you, I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm, to be honest, during COVID and, and everything else, I feel like the homelessness has, has spread and I'm seeing it like, you know, down the street and everywhere else. Um, do you think COVID has, has kind of made the situation worse in terms of, of people's lifestyles and losing jobs and losing homes and things like yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that more people are living out of their cars than ever before. Um, uh, I know that even I live in Northern California now, and so I, I'm starting to notice it even in my neck of the woods of how much homelessness has increased. You start to see more and more people on the street. And in an area like Skid Row, where that's where the services are, that's where the food banks are, 
you're starting to see more and more people come to that area because there really isn't a lot of other places to go. And I think with COVID specifically, it's an isolating disease. You know what I mean? So um, individuals become more isolated. Your connection to community disintegrates. And with that, you are just looking for an escape or you're looking for at least a place to feel like you're wanted. And I think that's good row in a weird way operates as that space to feel safe and not necessarily physically safe, but you know that there's resources there for you. Um, And so I think one of the hidden things that we're going to find out about in a couple of months is the impact that COVID had on the homeless community. I think that the homeless community was hit really hard with COVID. Uh, A lot of their resources were taken away because of COVID. Um, There were a lot of restrictions within shelters. So um, I think that that's going to be one of the one of the things that we're going to really note uh, in the next couple of months when things start to open up again. How did you, I mean, back to your kind of your, your, your upbringing and your, your education in this, how did you become a kind of aware of Skid Row or something of interest to you? Uh, so I'm an LA kid. Um, I'm an LA kid at my heart. Um, and so I grew up in West LA, South Central LA. And then in around eighth grade, ninth grade, uh, my family, uh, we lost our home. And so we had in like intense housing uh, issues. We couldn't find a home. We were staying at different people's houses. And so at an early age, I realized that there were two different, not different types of people, but there were different conditions that we were living in, even though I went to the same school as some of my classmates, where I was living and what I was going through was entirely different. And I think that what brought me to this project is um, my dad. So my dad um, has been dealing with issues of um, addiction for the last 20, 30 years um, uh, since I was a little kid. And uh, in my mid twenties, I wanted to reconnect with him. And so I didn't see my dad for a long time between the ages of 18 to 20, from 16 to 26. And I found out that he was living on Skid Row. So my dad was um, arrested and then when he was released, he was put into a program on Skid Row. And so part of this project was kind of this reconnection with my father and wondering why he never left this place. So he was placed in Skid Row and he was living there for the last 10 years of his life. And I kept asking him questions like, well, why don't you move? You're in Skid Row. You're in all of this poverty. And he was telling me that, like, no, this is my home. This is a place of hope. Uh, This is where all my friends are. And so this got me into understanding, like, well, there's this population here on Skid Row who don't leave. Um, This population who's been here for 20 to 30 years, and they've built this community. And so I think in many cases, when we think of Skid Row, it's like this abject homelessness and poverty, et cetera, all the worst things of you know a capitalist society but when you start to pull it back you realize that these people have built their own little community um, within this area and they rely upon themselves to kind of find their own personhood to find their own hope to um, make sense of their own reality again and i think that's one of the it's not the beauties of skid row but i think that's one of the things that really drew me into this project that you know, when we have marginalized groups, I think in many cases, especially in America, we try to fix them um, from an outside perspective, or we think that their lives are completely not worthless, but they are, there's no joy in their life. And looking at my dad and talking to the people on Skid Row, you can understand that there is this sense of joy, there is this sense of hope that still remains there. But unfortunately, because of different institutions and the way we constructed it, I'm, it's very hard for them to break out of it. 
And so you have this double-edged sword of them finally finding their community, but also realizing that they are in a confined community, that this space was kind of created to keep them there. Yeah. And, and, and you were saying kind of all the programs for their help, I mean, addiction and is, is, is mental health and all of those resources are pretty much located in Skid Row. So is, is, is that in, obviously that's where the help is needed, but is that intentional to kind of keep everyone in that space? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, NIMBY politics. So especially in the 1970s in L.A., um, there was a movement to open up a lot of these facilities in West L.A., and those were shut down. Uh, there were um, instances to move it to kind of like the East L.A. region, and that was also shut down. So there was only really one place where most of the homeless and, you know, um, 30, 40-year-old um, out-of-work men were living, and that was Skid Row. And so you have this you have this uh, intent to create the space of kind of like getting people out of poverty. Um, this will be like a one hub center where everyone can go get what's necessary. But what happened is that everyone started to arrive on Skid Row um, and you started to have a boom in the population, specifically in the 1980s, you know, with crack cocaine hitting South Central LA um, with um, different uh, economic downturns that occurred in the 1980s. So more and people are showing up and the services couldn't keep track. They couldn't keep up with the amount of need uh, for this area. And so we still see more and more services come into this area, but more and more people getting burnt out, more programs getting burnt out because there's just not enough, not enough resources for such a huge population. Yeah. I, I, you know, I found that, I mean, being from the, the UK, it's, it's actually um, illegal to sleep rough in the UK uh, under a certain law and an act. Oh, I guess it, it's not illegal here to sleep rough. Um, yeah, it is in some places. There are some ordinances, um, but it's it's illegal, but it's not necessarily um, policed, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so uh, Skid Row actually has that issue sometimes, like depending upon the mayor and depending upon the police chief, you start to see an increase in people being arrested for sleeping on the street or who have the shopping carts, uh, depending upon, you know, just how we feel at that time about the homeless population. Uh, and so right now we're in a period where it's more lax uh, than, than about 10 years ago, where there was this really increased presence of um, police forces uh, in that area, taking away people's shopping carts, arresting people for sleeping in areas that they don't belong. Uh, but it seems now that that's, that's limited to a degree. Mm-hmm. I, I actually saw, um, was there some um, laws passed or something like that who was kind of, um, the, 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 if you're living rough on the street and you're, you're, it's technically your property um, and they can't really enforce that anymore where they used to, they used to do it before and it's now legal to sleep in your car. Yeah. So now it's legal to sleep in your car because before, if you have a shopping cart, and you, you know, you had to go to a, um, you had to just go somewhere to a store, or you had to go into a shelter, you had to leave your shopping cart outside. Now your shopping cart is your life, if you are a person who lives on the streets on Skid Row. And what happened was that the LAPD, and specifically, there was a law in LA that said that classified shopping carts as trash or garbage. And so people would come in and dump those shopping carts. And when people would exit the shelters, they couldn't find their livelihood, they couldn't find their clothes or et cetera. And so um, for a, about a five to 10 year period, there was this really bad increase on um, just 
punitive policing on homeless bodies. And uh, it appears that in the last couple of years, especially up and down the state of California, we're starting to see more lax laws, especially with sleeping in cars. Uh, we're starting to see more tent villages too. Um, and so a lot of new, because homelessness is spread in California, you start to see um, a lot of small towns making the same mistakes that LA and other big cities have done of just kind of this intense policing of these areas. Like, well, if we just remove them, they won't be here anymore. Like if we just wash them away or arrest them, homelessness goes away. And we're starting to see that that's not the case. They come back because there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. The, um, I mean, just on, I was reading up on some statistics about, you know, the kind of age range of, uh, people on Skid Row and I'm, you know, it's actually quite shocking once I've started researching it, obviously for this, for this podcast, but I mean, something like 8% are under the age of 18, um, you know, there's like 4%, 18 to 24, 60% are 25 to 54. And obviously it goes up and up and up. It's insane. I, like, I, I wouldn't have known this. I mean, it's obviously I, I watched a documentary of, um, on Skid Row before, and it kind of focuses on the kind of older generation or the, the, the kind of who have been on Skid Row their whole lives. And like you said, um, they create a sense of community. So you see them trying to help them, putting them in, in, into a accommodation, and then they always pretty much 90% of the time go back on the streets because they feel more comfortable around their, their peers. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, those, those are shocking to me. I mean, especially under 18. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of that population is also the LGBT community um, in which their, you know, their own communities don't support them. And so they find themselves on the streets or um, addiction, young addiction, where kids get kicked out of the house and don't really have a place to go. And so we see a lot of those issues come about on Skid Row because it's the only place to go. Um, and so especially like with the ages of 25, that was one of the stark things that I noticed um, just kind of walking the streets of how many people were around my age um in skid row and i think that kind of goes to show the institutional failures um in terms of education in terms of law enforcement um in terms of just community safety nets that are not present um especially for the younger generation um and i think that uh, you know, especially with covid and kind of the economic downturn of the early 2000s we saw this this huge increase of people who you wouldn't necessarily consider homeless who were needing these resources um, more and more. Uh, there's a huge population of women and children on Skid Row. Um, and I th think a lot of people realize that, that there are a lot of um, shelters for women uh, who have been abused. There's a lot of, uh, there's a couple of schools for children specifically on Skid Row and programs that assist them. So um, it's like I was saying earlier, there's this community, there's this, and a community of all faces and races and um, age groups. Uh, that live here. So it's not just, you know, like I think the image of homelessness is a 50-year-old or 40-year-old person on the street um, who is in destitute poverty or who has uh, had an addiction or a, a vet. And when you kind of peel it back a little bit, you start to realize it's more nuanced and subtle than that. Um, and I think that's where the conversation really needs to go uh, instead of approaching it with like a top-down solution uh, that there, there needs to be a multi-level solution to fix these issues for these different populations because people end up on Skid Row for completely different reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
I, I mean, a ton of my listeners, I mean, including myself, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of call myself a practical, spiritual type of guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my mom was a single parent with five kids. We were raised in Section 8 home housing. So we could have went any of those ways, you know. The, the, but I started to study my, my own, my upbringing, the, the, you know, the shitty situations that would come to me and all these type of things. And I could trace it back to an emotion within myself, which would be the attraction. Um, and I know you're a doctor and stuff, so I, I, I'm trading I'm trying practically. Um, so for example, I mean, uh, in relation to Skid Row, you know, the war on poverty kind of, it brings more poverty. The war on guns brings more guns. The war on drugs brings more drugs. I always, I don't focus on the actual issue. I want to focus on the solution. And I know it's a broad spectrum solution in terms of what we can do for Skid Row, but I'd love your, your expertise on, on what you think Magic Wand Boom could be done to help people on Skid Row. Yeah, I think the first issue was housing. Like if you have an unhoused community, that means that there's not enough housing for these individuals. And I think that especially in a place like LA where you know, like housing, it's incredibly expensive, even low income housing, it's it's incredibly expensive, that it's hard to talk about homelessness without actually having the surplus of homes to give them or the apartments, et cetera. Um, And then it's, a lack of resources in terms of mental health counseling, in terms of jobs, in terms of just resources. I think that the reason why it's a service center ghetto is because we wanted, we didn't necessarily want Skid Row, but we wanted, we wanted to confine poverty and homelessness to one area, and we didn't want it to spread to the rest of LA. And so what happens then, it's like when you confine it to one area, there's only so many resources that could be available to that population. And I think that there needs to be a reimagining of kind of art, not even a reimagining. I think that people need to start caring a little bit more. I think that a lot of the policies that we have towards the homeless and just for poor people in general are incredibly punitive um, that we as a society, we look down on people who are down and out. Um, You know, I come from a single parent household too, you know, like my mom had to like work hard and, um, and, you know, you start to realize how people look at people who are poor. And I think that that's really highlighted in how we treat this issue of homelessness, where we try to look for the quick fix instead of sitting down and talking to the population and figuring out what exactly do they want? What do they need? Um, and I think that there just needs to be a larger conversation and a reality check um, for citizens and cities. Of like, is this the city that we want? Is this like, are we okay with having a space like this? Mm-hmm. And, and not just like, oh, can we just like move these people out of this space? But like, what can we do to make this space more beneficial to them, to the city, et cetera? And I think that that's, that's like the first step that we need to take of just giving a damn um, about these populations instead of trying to erase them. 100%. Um, I, I, I'm actually reading this book. I don't know if you've read it before. Uh, Atomic Habits. Um, no, I think my partner has read this book. My spouse has read this book though. Yeah, uh, it's a uh, great book. And I'm reading, and it's, it's so relevant to our conversation now because I mean, our habits are automatically instilled in us n- during COVID and lockdown and everything else. And just in general for a day. So, uh, 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 in our lives, and it's very hard to break those habits unless you keep focusing on the actual habit and then you kind of transform it over time. It can't be like, okay, you know, I have this habit of smoking. I'm going to quit now. It's a process of, yeah. you know, same with kind of, I guess, with as when watching the documentary on Skid Row and the homeless population and 
they're they're all again community and they they have their habits now of living the way they're living so if we were to bring kind of housing and stuff you'd have to break the habit of them sleeping on the street and being around the people they're around and everything else which i found super fascinating because it's, it's almost human behavior is it, it could be a solution to you know skid row and everything else which again goes back to resources and therapy and all these type of things is the therapy actively open for people to use on Skid Row? Is, I mean, I can imagine like the long wait lines and all these type of things. I'm, so, I'm so I, intrigued by it. Yeah, yeah. So therapy is available and a lot of people are a part of different programs. And so that's the one thing about Skid Row that's interesting that almost every person you meet is either a part of like a residential program, a mental health program, or they're getting services from the shelter. And so it is available, but in terms of like the accessibility of it, that's the difficult part. And kind of going back to what you were saying of like this habit breaking, like I think that's also key where um, I don't necessarily think it's a habit. I think it's a trauma response. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if you've ever had to live on the street, like one or two days, that's a traumatic event. And I don't think that we as a society realize that we're not just dealing with issues of trauma, of, of homelessness, we're dealing with issues of increased community trauma. And so if you have a, a majority of your community that have had traumatic events, that's going to be really tough to break through. And especially if like while they're on Skid Row, another traumatic event happens, like it's it compounds and it's harder for those people to break those habits, especially if there's habits of safety, you know, of like if I sleep on the streets, I know that's safer than sleeping in a shelter, especially if I'm a woman, you know, or if I'm a child, um, if I'm sleeping by myself on the street and I have my belongings with me, I know that I protect my belongings. No one else can um, jack my belongings if I'm not there. And so like these habits, these survival habits um, are practices of like homelessness are necessary in order to live. And I think um, part of like my study was also kind of looking at what are these practices are you know these performances of everyday life that these individuals have to do in order to survive like there's a part of you that has like living in you know in our normal whatever society it's different than living in skid row you have to approach it differently you have to walk differently and that builds up after years and years especially if you've been there for a couple of decades um this is now how you view life this is how you view space this is how you interact with people yeah i mean it's it i find the whole thing i mean super like this is the reason why i wanted to bring you on the on the show because uh, i know for a fact ton of my listeners are aren't probably aware but from all over the world um and uh, i read somewhere about um containment so contain is, is that still a thing in skid row of containing the area making sure they don't spread out of there making sure i mean i that seems to me like it's focusing instead of helping with the solution that seems like it's something that's um you know stopping people from kind of uh, you know kind of trying to get out of skid row if that makes sense yeah like i think at different parts we there's this containment strategy of Skid Row. So I think like in the 1980s, there was this containment strategy because you had a lot of people who were addicted to drugs on Skid Row. So you don't want those people to get into downtown LA. Um, because remember downtown LA for a long period of time in the late 1980s, late 1990s, for your listeners who weren't aware, um, it wasn't, LA 
LA's downtown is a little bit different than other places downtown um, because LA is so spark, like it's so wide. Um, there's different pockets that most Angelinos go to um, to kind of hang out. And so downtown LA wasn't necessarily a hub that you would go to at night or to go to, et cetera. And so um, there was this renewed sense of rebuilding downtown LA. So whenever we try to re-energize downtown LA or more gentrification comes into that area, um, you start to see more containment strategies of Skid Row because you're bringing in more money to that area, but you also realize you have this population of unhoused individuals who some might have mental issues coming into this area and you don't want to see that. I think that many people, when they go to downtown, you know, like they're afraid of those individuals. And so containment usually comes up every like 10 years or so. It starts to become this cycle. Um, and I think like it's what's interesting and in kind of like in my study of Skid Row and looking at homelessness in the America as like a larger project is that these strategies they come about, they repeat themselves, that they loop, that like, you know, the first homeless communities were Hoovervilles in the 1930s, 1940s of people who built their own communities. They built these little shanties um, in um, downtown regions or agricultural regions of the city. And they were, you know, trying to survive those areas during um, a huge economic downturn. And and we start to see that after those communities were built, they try to contain those communities or try to erase those communities. And I think that we start to see the same thing in Skid Row and other homeless populations that we we try to contain it. And then when we can't contain it, we try to bring more resources there. And when there's those resources don't work, we become punitive against that population, um, trying to arrest them uh, and trying to get them out of the region again. And then it just continues every single decade um, that we just kind of fall into this trap of thinking that we can contain homelessness um, when it's it's something that's part of, unfortunately, that's part of our economic system right now, um, that homelessness exists and we need to figure out exactly who we are and like, what do we want to do in regards to this issue? Are we okay as a society having unhoused people? I think that's like the first question because if we were as, as a society viewed unhoused people as something that like, no, that doesn't happen, then we would fix it. Um, but I think that unfortunately there's this idea that like it's a problem that's too big or it's a problem that's too vast when in reality, I just don't think that we've put enough effort in to assist and help this issue. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's um there's a ton of regeneration going on, uh, which kind of brings me to my next question on gentrification. I mean, you know, a ton of obviously I work in music, um, and there's a bunch of the music labels down there. I know there's like I don't know Apple Music is is headquarters are going to be down there, and a ton of other huge corporations that are you know buying up warehouses and and everything else. I mean, could could that be an issue, or do you think that that's part of the solution? I think that's going to be an issue for the population of Skid Row. I think that uh, those those businesses are going to do fine. They're going to they're going to be all right. Um, but unfortunately, you're going to start to see an increase of police presence uh, to make sure that the individuals who don't belong there aren't there. 
Um, and like, that's kind of what happened in the early 2010s, like early, like the late aughts, where you started to see more lofts become developed like in Skid Row. And this kind of leads back to that Elisa Lam case, um, where you started to see this um, more real estate investment in downtown LA, um, more apartments that were a little bit fancier than before began to emerge, different populations come in, like a younger population of, of successful young professionals coming in. And then you started to see an increased police presence on Skid Row. Um, you started to see more cops arresting people for issues of unsanitary practices, um, where you start to see more health campaigns uh, on Skid Row of trying to clean it up. Uh, and um, when you clean something up, that means that it's dirty. That means that you don't want it. It needs to be disposed of. And unfortunately, what we're disposing of is people and their belongings and their life um, that we view this as something that is unsanitary. We view this as something that is dirty, that doesn't belong in a city. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that like with this new um, development that's occurring in downtown LA, I think you're going to start to see, unfortunately, some of the same practices of policing that kind of emerged just 10 years ago in order to solve it. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in terms of gentrification, because I mean, I've lived in some of the poorest areas ever and, and I go back there now and they're nice. Um, is that not just kind of growth of the, the, the area in, in per se, or is that specifically targeted to make it a better, cause that's always confused me about gentrification. Um, I guess I was part of it, um, in terms of, you know, where I came from and wh where I am now, but for me, my evolutionary trait is, you know, the struggles, the struggles, the struggles, the struggles, then it's kind of like the maturity of myself and realizing the gifts and the, the education that I can put upon myself and taking the, the forefront of that, which, which you seem to have done too, um, you know, with your family and the background you've come from, is that not the natural progression of humanity or, or, or is that still classified as gentrification? No, I think that is natural. I think that cities evolve, cities change. They've always have changed. That's what makes a city, you know, like that's why what draws people to cities um, is kind of to see that growth and that progress. Um, I think the issue is when certain services or infrastructures are denied to certain populations, um, that if there's a certain population that's asking for more police presence or they're asking for cleaner facilities or more programs in those areas and they're denied for decades and another population comes in and the city grants them those resources. I think that's the problem with gentrification is that um, when infrastructure and policies are not given to one population but are given to another, that we prioritize certain bodies over others. And like, I think that's at the heart of um, I, of modern gentrification studies of understanding that it's not just like a bunch of rich people moving into an area or are, you know, kind of young professionals. It's that what happened to that family that's been there for over 20 years that has been asking for those same resources? Like, did they not deserve a coffee shop? Uh, did they not deserve increased present police presence at night? Um, they did, and they were part of that community. And so um, figuring out ways in which we can you know, bring in, you know, like this, the, you know, people who want to live in these communities with people who have already lived with these uh, in these communities. And I think that like, that's what makes a city great. You know, like when you have neighbors who have been there for over 30 years, who know everyone else in the neighborhood, who know the old shops, but also you have the new people who are bringing in new energy. I think that's beautiful. Um, but unfortunately, the stage of gentrification that we're in, those old neighbors have to move now.
And so you have these new communities of all new people not really understanding kind of that history. Um, and I think that's really important of understanding the history of a space, of understanding how a space got to be this way. I think that that's what drew me into the, my work of Skid Row and just my larger work of like, how do we create spaces? How do we um, understand these spaces? How do we, you know, like, how do we live our lives and live in our bodies in these particular areas? Because we realize when we're walking from one neighborhood to the next, our bodies, our performances change. We understand that this area is like this, this area is like that. And I think that with Skid Row, um, there's been a lack of that conversation. There's been a lack of that conversation in downtown LA that I hopefully is becoming energized and we're ready to talk about that. Uh, I, I guess, I mean, uh, other than the weather, I mean, what... what uh... What brings kind of, I guess, a ton of people come out of state to California who are homeless? To, it, it, I mean, what's the reason for that? Because I mean, I, just from my own education in terms of it, obviously the weather's better and everything else, um, how, how do they get here? All right. So Skid Row is interesting. So like one, you have people who lived in L.A. who just know about Skid Row and they end up on Skid Row. Number two, if you were an incarcerated individual and you got out of jail, then they place you in a facility um, that's probably in Skid Row um, or a program that's located in Skid Row. Uh, and then if you come from a mental facility, specifically in the 1980s, we saw the closing of a lot of mental facilities in California. And so those mental facilities told their people to just go to Skid Row because those are where the resources are. And then you, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had other states bringing people to Skid Row, um, bringing in their homeless population and dumping them on Skid Row. Uh, you have mental facilities from other counties bringing their patients to Skid Row once they were re released. And so it's not just about people coming to Skid Row. It's also people being placed in Skid Row or people being forced to go to Skid Row. And they have no idea about the area. They don't know where they're at. And so you have these people who are completely confused or just unaware of where they are in terms of geography and having to find a way out of that. And, you know, like that takes a lot out of a human being, um, especially to go through a traumatic event and then be placed in a situation or area that you don't really have any connection to. And you have no choice. I mean, it's like, you know, especially the programs are there. That's fucking insane. Like, yes, <laughs> like shockingly. And that brings me to my next point as well. It's like I read a, a story on patient dumping from hospitals and law enforcement to Skid Row. Yeah. Yes, um, that was a huge issue about 10, uh, 10 years ago, um, where in the middle of the night there would be buses um, and they would just dump. Uh, for a lack of a better word, their patients that were just released into Skid Row in the middle of the night. And so in the morning, you would just see people wandering Skid Row, not knowing where they were, they were still on their medication, or they were coming off their medication. And like, and so you have this, it's insane when you really think about it of how we treat people with a mental illness or how we treat people with homelessness of like, well, we could just dump you here and eventually you'll figure it out. And expecting those people to kind of live productive, normal lives again, like that's, and and also just the treatment of it, the treatment of how we treat another human being uh, in that way, that's a need of care, that's a need of resources that we can just dump their bodies in a place and forget about them. 
And I think that's one of the things that I find that's the that's the worst part of Skid Row is realizing that this is where we dump the people that we don't want in our society. And that's the part that's really hard to deal with in a way where it's just like this is a designated space for the unwanted. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I think that, you know, like as a caring human being, you're like, that's fucked up. We should change that. We There needs to be something done. But I think that we haven't talked about how we treat homelessness or homeless populations in this country and had a real conversation about that in a long time, because we wouldn't do that if if we had those conversations, if we knew better, um, or if we were even aware of it. I don't think a lot of people are aware of how bad dumping is, especially for mental patients or homeless individuals. You, uh, you know what, uh, for me, but being an out, you know, an outsider, insider, well, uh, the USA is, for me, America has always been, you know, a, a place of taking. You know, the historical uh, culture is, you know, you take the land, you take this, you take that. And you see and you know, like even the the civil services, whether you go to the DMV, for example, you can tell they've sapped every type of profit you could ever imagine from all of those establishments or any of them, any of them. You can go to any of them, which is so surreal to me. So I can only imagine what they're doing with the actual people who actually need the help. Um, and which brings me on to my next point of like, you know, I read a story about medieval diseases coming back amongst, you know, Skid Row, whether it's typhus, hepatitis, tuberculosis. Um, and then I read some, some story about the, uh, bubonic plague being rediscovered there. I mean, is that, I mean, I can only imagine the, the amount of diseases, uh, within those areas. Yeah, so disease is a really big issue with Skid Row. Um, and I think you see a lot of health um, uh, programs uh, emerge there, a lot of uh, operations to clean up like a very certain disease, like depending upon uh, the year, uh, there's an outbreak of something. And I think that's because of a lack of medical care in that area. Like it's a dirty area. Like, let's be honest. Like it's, it's an area that has a lot of filth in it. And unfortunately, not a lot of services are there to clean it up. There's not a lot of bathrooms if you're a homeless person where do you go to the restroom if you're unable to get into a shelter like where do you go to clean yourself there's not a lot of showers available um, unless you get a shelter for that night and so disease is going to run rampant in a population in which there's not enough resources to live a sanitary life uh, and so especially when there's not a lot of medical resources there either where most of the individuals on skid row get dumped into one specific hospital and because they're dumped in one that's that specific hospital that hospital isn't the best like it's it's doing the best that it can but also you know like it's 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 strained in terms of what they can do to assist this population and for most people in skid row if you're if you're hungry, if you have lived this life for a long time and you're a little bit sick, you just kind of live through it, not understanding the the significance of the disease that you might have. I think a lot of people don't under, don't realize they are infected with something or they are um, sick. I think they realize that they're sick, but I don't think to the degree um, that these disease warrants. It's insane. I mean, I think you're right. I think the way we as a society tr treat human beings um, is insane to me. Um, and even I read a report of the condition. I mean, obviously, it's one of the poorest areas in the world, literally. Um, and I read a report of it, just the availability of toilets is worse than a, a United Nations run Syrian refugee camp, which 
I mean, is insane. Is in, yeah. literally. I mean, you could in war torn countries. Um, and it kind of brings me on to my, my, I guess, my next point is, you know, I, I do a ton of meditation. My, my my mind used to be racing all over the place. I used to be, you know, um, in my inside, I was so conflicted and everything else. And I found myself with meditation. My mind is is is, is quieter. I'm able to hear my own thoughts. I'm able to, and I can only imagine what you know, someone who's homeless, the amount of stress they're under mentally physically as well as everything else are there any programs that 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 focus on the kind of the not the mental aspect i wouldn't say therapy but i'd say the kind of meditation quieting the mind you know the kind of anything to kind of take their minds away from their situation yeah so there's a couple of programs especially in the shelters they do um mindfulness uh, practices in some of the shelters there's different programs for like not necessarily just mental health but just kind of like spiritual wellness uh that's one of the key things about skid around that's always been present it's like this this uh spiritual wellness of the population um so you saw a lot of churches um start to develop programs in the 1950s 1960s um you start to see a lot more of the shelters bringing in outside experts to talk to this population and so like there is there there is a need for it and there are people who are trying to do that work but it's a lot of work to do Mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think that like they're doing great work. And I think that that's a really important aspect that has been forgotten about of like, how do we slow down? Like, how do we get out of survival, out of the survival mindset um, for the homeless population or the unhoused um, individuals where if every day is survival, how tough is that on your brain how tough is that on your emotions every single day you're always tense you're always trying to fight and so that that takes a lot of you takes a lot out of you as a human being um and i think that that's going to be something that we like i think that that is a necessary resource especially if we're talking about how do we fix this issue how do we clear up the space how do we assist the people of this area that it's going to be like a multi-level approach that we not only have to fix their material conditions but we also have to fix their not fix but we also have to assist their spirits um of bringing more hope and bringing more kind of like spiritual guidance, uh, guidance and, and, and just personal awareness, I think is really important, especially if we're trying to assist them to get out of poverty and get to that next level. Yes, I completely agree. Oh man, this, honestly, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but no, no, this is great. Yeah. yeah. You are a fantastic, you are fantastic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I want to, seriously, I want to thank you so much, man. I mean, it's something that, you know, uh, me as, you know, from my background, I've been pretty closed off over the years in terms of, as I'm sure you, you know, you know, you don't really trust anyone. You kind of focus on your own thing. I don't like to be disappointed by anyone. You know, I, I, I've isolated myself from society as my own social experiment. And I'm kind of manifesting my way now through life, through my emotions, through my feelings, through the things I want. Um, and that's kind of I'm my kind of and now I've started to be like, OK, now I'm in a position where I can actually help. Yeah, that's where I was at, too, where it's like you you struggle for so long and you grind for so long where it's like, I got this. Yeah. I got this. And you develop necessary skills and tools where you're like, I'm trying to better myself as a person. And then there becomes a moment where it's like, all right, I've bettered myself. Now, what do I do with this? Yes. You realize that your body, like the skills that you have, the knowledge that you have can impact the world in a more positive way. And 
trying to figure out how to impact it in the most efficient and effective way possible. I think it's something that we all are need to strive for as individuals, um, that we can make an impact on this world, but you know, and we all make an impact in different ways. And I think it's really important to understand what are those ways that we can impact. And like, for me, that was the research that was kind of doing this work and um, giving, not giving a voice because they've already had a voice, but just kind of documenting these histories, documenting their everyday lives, I think is really important um, because this is a population in the, the United States that has been here for so long um, and their histories have been forgotten. When we talk about civil rights struggles in this country, I don't think that we spend enough time talking about the struggle of poverty and homelessness, that that's also part of that larger struggle that we're all fighting for. And so I think it's really important for us to just figure out what, not, not what we're good at, but figure out what we give a damn about and go for it. Beautiful. You are the shit. Seriously, your mind is beautiful. Keep doing what you're doing. I cannot thank you enough. This has been incredible. And I'm sure this won't be the last time you'll be on the show. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, anytime, bring me back. I would love to talk more about this issue and other issues that you're interested in. 100%. Oh, my God. Uh, this, that was amazing. <laughs>